0: Split Tales is intended for a mature audience. Episodes discuss topics that can be disturbing, including graphic depictions of sexual violence, including emotional, physical and sexual violence, discussions of mental health addiction and suicide. There is also coarse language. In some episodes, names and identifying details have been changed to protect the privacy of individuals. I am not a therapist, doctor, or lawyer, and opinions expressed from guests on the show are their own, and they don't necessarily represent my or the views of Split Tales. Welcome back to the second part of our post-mortem episode in Hannah's Tale. This episode is going to be more technical. We'll cover peripheral issues that surfaced in Hannah's Tale, The last episode we covered expert insights about the underlying behavioural issues of sexual coercion and financial abuse and co-parenting with child support challenges. This episode, I've endeavoured to chunk it up so that it's easy to digest and so that the insights are easy to understand. Our focus will extend into the understanding of coercive control legislation, protection orders and considerations for those contemplating leaving a controlling relationship, You're sick of my madness Don't you tell me what i supposed to do you better off me While Google searches for the word divorce surged to their highest point in 12 months There are over 1 million single parent families in Australia And 4 out of 5 of those households are headed by a female I know what I'm supposed to do As we proceed, it's crucial to acknowledge that this episode doesn't offer a comprehensive guide. Every situation is unique with varying risks and complexities. Our aim is to shed light on those issues, but we strongly encourage you to seek professional advice tailored to your circumstances. These post-mortem episodes focus on information specifically relevant to Hannah's experience with the knowledge that abuse knows no gender. This is not a narrative of gender bashing, quite the contrary. We are not ignorantly generalising abusers as male. Again, like the previous episode, we trust you'll understand our pronoun references are purposeful and we ask for your trust and continued appreciation of that choice. As we connect each reference purposefully to Hannah's tale. In future episodes, these pronouns will undoubtedly be interchanged to reflect future tales because in controlling relationships, perpetrators can be any gender. And we understand that some separations are amicable and we will cover those types of scenarios as well. So the reason that I've made this part two with our post-mortem is that the breadth of information that our experts shared During the first episode was just simply too vast to be confined to a single episode, which leads me to create this dedicated space for expert thoughts on untangling a shared life. We're going to hear the familiar voices of Jacinta and Desley from our previous episode. And to remind you of their voices, here are some handy insights that they shared with us before. Jacinta, a counsellor, shares not just from textbooks, but also from her personal chapters.
1: And there's a lot of misconceptions out there that a narcissistic abuser doesn't really realize that what they're doing is abuse they may not allow themselves to admit within themselves that what they're doing is abuse but they know exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it and at the end of the day it's power and control
0: and desley a lawyer who's no stranger to the legal labyrinth of divorce brings to the table a rich tapestry of legal expertise intertwined with personal insights. If
2: we've got red flags at the start, you need to be equipped for those red flags to turn into complete fires that are going to tank things because when people get emotionally inflamed, it's nine times out of 10 in my experience, it will get worse.
0: The process of separating can be as involved and nuanced as the process of coming together. Each financial entanglement, shared experience and co-mingled aspect of our lives requires attention and care to separate. It demands patience. Just as a relationship doesn't blend overnight, the division of a shared life can't be rushed. Assets and finances, personal belongings and emotional connections all take time to disentangle and to reorient into a new individual life. So remember, while we strive to provide insightful content, Every situation is unique. It's vital to consult with professionals who offer personalised advice and support for your circumstance. Desley has over 15 years experience in law. She's observed a significant increase in the severity and frequency of relationship breakdowns. Reflecting on her personal experience, Desley shares a childhood memory of her own parents' separation. Despite her professional background, Desley admits to falling into the pattern of DV relationships herself, not recognising the warning signs. She highlights the distressing reality of individuals feeling trapped in an abusive or controlling relationship. Emphasising preparedness, Desley advises everyone, even in stable relationships, to have an emergency fund. Do you think that there's an increase of in severity of relationship breakdowns in DV within that you're seeing? Or is it that people are getting better at identifying it?
2: I think there isn't, there's definitely an increase, like when I first started in law like more than 15 years ago, there was not this level of, it wasn't as frequent, I would say, when it was happening, it was more severe, but it would be maybe one in every 10. Now I'm like, it's one in every 10 that doesn't have this issue. I think part of it is we are becoming more aware, but society, the way we operate has changed significantly. The pressures are different. We've also had COVID. And then I think we also have more prevalence of things like drug use and criminal behavior. My parents separated when I was really young. That was a DV incident in the middle of the night. Like I woke up as a four, five, six year old, can't pinpoint the exact age, but I think I was. And I woke up because I heard the yelling. I didn't know what it was. Mum walked out the front door. I didn't know where she was going or what she was doing. I just knew everyone was really upset. And I remember looking at dad and he was like, go with your mother, I will see you again. So I followed mum and we slept in a bus shelter that night and actually for like a few nights after that because mum had immigrated to Australia and didn't have a job. So she had no support network and no funds whatsoever. Mum didn't work while she was in the relationship due to my dad's control. He did not want her to work. He wanted her to stay at home and look after the children. And in his words, it was because it was a woman's job. I didn't really comprehend what we were doing for a very long time. And then I went on to a string of DV relationships because I didn't recognize, despite working in family law, I didn't recognize the warning signs. I didn't think it was happening to me. I thought in my head I gave away my power or this is how our relationship works so it's fine. And it wasn't until I had someone physically controlling me or kind of manipulating me or making me feel really bad for things like wanting to see my friends or wanting to go to work or wanting to study or make healthier life choices in some instances or eat differently to them that I was like, this isn't right.
0: (laughs) When, was it you that came to that epiphany yourself or did you find external factors that influenced
2: that? Sadly, it was me that came to that epiphany. I wish, there was one relationship in particular where my friends didn't particularly like the guy but I think they didn't want to meddle in the relationship, but I wish they had said something because that was one which actually got to the point of the police being involved. And mentally that that still affects me today. Like I'm quite triggered by it. I'm upset with myself for putting myself in that position, but you live and you learn. But I just can't believe that I was ever at a point in my life where someone could make me feel so low or control me so much.
0: Has that impacted you practice
2: more now? in a way it informs what I do because I can see the signs but I also have to be professional and not get involved um, but the hardest part or the biggest impact it has is that I really do hurt when I see clients go through that because I know from trying to heal from that that it doesn't ever go away it's like it ends up being like a scar so that's yeah that hurts and it can be really triggering when i'm doing a lot of family law or domestic violence cases and i see it going on like i genuinely do get really hurt by that
0: what do you think hannah could have done
2: better i think hannah could have to avoid that situation lean on her supports talk about it a little bit more try and have the hard conversations with a partner and maybe speak to someone, because I know her income was controlled or she didn't have access to that, which always ends up being a really big problem. But I know for clients I've had in the past, their sister holds $2,000 in a savings account, which was built up from the change you get from paying or change taken out of the kid's money box or out of um, cup holders in the car somewhere where it's not going to be noticed and start building that so you have an escape fund and some escape money. Yes, you won't have the money in your name, but at least you've got a buffer there to start something if you really do need to run. Yeah.
0: Have you found that there's one common thing that people do that you would wish that they probably didn't do in a separation?
2: That they wait so long to get help. I'm guilty of it too, maybe that's because I have been a victim. I don't know if people who haven't been through these things. Yes, it's a sensitive issue and you probably do want to keep it private, but have your safe person for that. But if you have someone who is aware of the situation, at least then you've got the starting point for help and someone to maybe be the voice of reason.
0: Here's Jacinta's thoughts.
1: What I'm I'm seeing a lot from um, victims of domestic violence, and I say victims because being a victim is not a bad thing. Doesn't mean that you're weak or anything like that. It just means that this is something you were victimized. You can take that out if you want to. Survivor, the term survivor can be more insulting Um, because I guess it kind of just makes it it cheapens it a little bit and it forces people to feel like they need to be strong. That's, that's the other thing is that I, I don't want any, any of my clients to feel like that they have to be strong, that, there is, that any kind of vulnerability or feeling sorry for yourself is, is a sign of weakness. This, this kind of experience is just, it is so life-changing. It, it alters everything. It makes everything hard and uncertain and it doesn't matter where you are in your life on your life path doesn't matter how old you are what um you know so so socioeconomic background you come from that that is the one main consistency is that it is so absolutely difficult and it is okay to own that doesn't mean you're weak um but going back to um what you're question was about Hannah and what I see commonly is the lack of comprehension of what is domestic violence. You know, you've got your abuse wheels, you've got your domestic violence wheels and power control wheel. You've got all of those and they're fantastic. I I swear by them, they are great. But underneath it all with what domestic violence is, is there's still not a lot of awareness out there. Also the frequencies. We all have shitty days. we all do things. Every single one of us do things in relationships that can be considered abuse. Yeah. It, it's just part of being human. The difference is the frequency and the intention. Were you intentionally trying to hurt that person or were you just
0: responding
1: because you're going through something else and you're having a really hard time?
0: Jacinta addresses the emotional complexities of abusive relationships. She reassures those in such relationships that it is normal to still love their abuser and that leaving an abusive relationship often involves a trauma bond. Her message is one of self-compassion and understanding, encouraging individuals to recognise their own worth and prioritise their well-being over the relationship. Jacinda described to me some critical aspects of controlling relationships, focusing on the perception and terminology used to describe those affected, She expressed concern that the term survivor might inadvertently pressure individuals to feel like they have to be strong or resilient, and that potentially trivialises their experience. Jacinta also delves into the widespread misunderstanding of what constitutes domestic violence. She points out that while educational tools like abuse and power control wheels are helpful, there remains a lack of deep awareness about the nature of domestic violence. A key factor that she highlights is the differentiation between normal human conflict and abusive behaviour, which lies in its frequency and the intention behind the actions. How do you differentiate the domestic violence situation if there's no physical altercations? Do you have to have a certain Amount of evidence?
2: That's a really difficult question to answer because in Queensland they've just brought in the coercive control
0: definition. So let's put some more meat on the bones here around coercive control legislation. And to set the scene, in Australia domestic violence, or DV, is defined by the Family Law Act of 1975. Each state and territory has its own legislation that builds on this and some of the states broaden the scope of that definition and the terminology varies. But at its core, the description of domestic violence is the same. It's a behaviour that's violent, threatening, controlling or intended to make you or your family feel scared and unsafe. That behaviour can be considered family and domestic violence. I want to make that description clear because in coercive control legislation it refers to this term domestic violence now bear with me and let's loop back to what desley mentioned about the tricky question of what coercive control is and how to identify it when there is no physical altercations so the australian government and state territory governments have been working together through the standing council of attorneys general to introduce national principles to address coercive control. And on the 22nd of September of this year, 2023, the national principles were released, setting out a shared understanding of common features and impacts. As I mentioned, legislation and coercive control can differ between different states and territories in Australia. But here in Queensland, coercive control legislation talks to an offence that criminalises the conduct of an adult where the person is in a domestic relationship with another person and where that person engages in a course of conduct against the other person that consists of domestic violence occurring in more than one occasion. So let's just break that down a bit more. These laws are about making sure people don't hurt each other in relationships in sneaky ways, not just physically. If someone in a relationship repeatedly behaves in a way that controls or scares their partner, it's against the law. This can include things that hurt someone emotionally, mentally, or even financially, but not just physically. The law looks at whether the person doing these things means to control or scare their partner, and if their actions could reasonably be expected to harm the other person in any way. It's important because it protects people from being harmed in more than just physical ways in a relationship. Do you have any sort of advice As to what people can do if they've identified that they're in a relationship that could be defined as abusive or even if they're just in a relationship where they just don't want to be in anymore. What sort of coping mechanisms and advice can you give?
1: Coping mechanisms and advice on what to do in that kind of situation, they're probably two different things. So I'll go with the advice first. Um, What I would definitely recommend is documenting and talking to people. So don't just talk to just your friends or your family, but talk to a counsellor, talk to your doctor, your GP, tell your GP, everything. Um, but when you're talking to your friends, if, you, if you're on social media or text message or whatever, however you kind of communicate with your friends outside of face-to-face, ask them to keep your messages and then delete it from your own end. So that way, they can kind of keep a track record and talk to them about this. Just say, I, I need to document what I'm doing, but I don't feel safe because I'm still in this relationship. I don't feel safe that he's not gonna read, go through my phone. So send it to your friend, let them know what's going on, delete it from your end. And then that way on their end, they've still got all of this documentation. That will have, if you do an email, Facebook, it will have time, date, what happened. And that that's the other thing. You try and have the time and the date what happened, how it made you feel, if anyone witnessed it. So when you are ready to leave and you are considering, if you consider putting in a DVO, you've got that information. You can ask your friend to send you all of that information. You can just list it in your DVO. That will make things so much easier. It also kind of takes that pressure off of you at that time, because it is really, really difficult to even process what's going on for you, let alone to try and remember everything that's happened.
0: That's really good
1: point. I I do that for a lot of women with my advocacy as well, is if I see that someone's going through domestic violence, I I will put my hand up to be in person to just keep record. So if they ever need it, then they can use it. If they don't need it, no worries, no harm. It's just there as a safeguard. And it's interesting to see how people start noticing more and more what is going on when they start writing it down.
0: And that will open up more. They see the pattern. It gives a bit of control back as well, doesn't it? Yeah.
1: And that's that's also one thing that I've noticed as well is that abusers are so focused on their abuse, whether they are lower socioeconomic or affluent. They are so focused on their abuse that they don't think to document what they're doing or anything that you're doing. They're they're too too busy trying to ruin you. Whereas if you're just documenting it, that is one thing. The other thing that I'll mention as well is that um, there's there's this video, this lady that I follow on Facebook, it's called Negotiating with Narcissists. It's really, really powerful, but a bit of a idea of what, What it's about is that only respond to what is relevant. So, for example, someone makes all of these allegations about you. They're completely false. They and, you know, you know that they're false and you just want to fight back and fight back and tell them everything and lash at them. All you need to say is, I do not agree with your version of events. Respond with that if there's children involved only respond to what is relevant with the children you do not need to respond to all of the other crap that they're calling you you don't need to it's just respond to what is relevant so they they can have like 40 paragraphs of abuse towards you and then have one question about your child or when is pickup all you respond is pickup is at 4 p.m. Is showing that you are maintaining an effective co-parenting relationship but you are not engaging in the abuse you can also say if you continue to speak to me this way i will stop engaging with you because that is showing that you are willing to communicate you are willing to be able to have an effective co-parenting relationship but you are not willing to be abused you are not willing to be spoken to that way you're setting a boundary and that's completely okay if there is no children involved i love when there's no children involved because grey rock and we can probably do a whole lot of episode on grey rocking grey rocking is my favorite thing in the world when it comes to this kind of situation cut them off you change all of your passwords on all of your social medias email your Netflix and like streaming accounts because I've, I've heard, and this has actually happened with my and lived experience. They will use the names, the profile names to get a hold of you. Like they'll like send you little messages in the profile names on the streaming services. It's ridiculous. But everything they possibly can to get a hold of you. So you block their access to anything that they have to communicate to you
0: with. Grey rocking is a psychological technique used to deter manipulative or abusive individuals. It involves making oneself as uninteresting, unresponsive and emotionally detached as possible, akin to a grey rock. The primary purpose of the method is to avoid provoking any form of emotional reaction or engagement, which manipulative people often seek to exploit. By presenting oneself as dull and unengaging, the individual practicing grey rocking reduces the likelihood of becoming a target for manipulation or abuse. Grey rocking is often recommended in situations where one must interact with a manipulative person but seeks to minimise conflict or emotional drama. It's particularly useful in cases where cutting off contact completely just isn't feasible. Grey rocking serves as a protective strategy offering a way to navigate difficult interactions with manipulative individuals however it's important to assess each situation individually and consider the long-term solutions for safety and well-being So we've just heard from Jacinta about the power of documentation and the importance of open communication when navigating the turbulent waters of an abusive relationship. Jacinta isn't alone in her approach to this delicate matter. Let's reinforce the bridge here with Desley's professional perspective. Desley, drawing from recent changes in Queensland approach to handling coercive control, aligns perfectly with Jacinta's advice as she again shines a light on the dark patterns of control and manipulation through meticulous collection of evidence. While Jacinta suggests reaching out and securely archiving communication away from prying eyes, Desley fortifies this action with the backing of the law. The nuances of the new legislation recognize the significance of patterns that paint the full picture of coercive control, be it a journal entry text messages, financial records, or anything that documents a communication, both Jacinta and Desley champion a united front. Document, document, document. Document everything. One of the
2: biggest things in coercive control is a pattern of behavior. So keeping a diary is a great way because it's kept at the time of the event and you are recording things daily because if you don't keep a diary, you'll get to the point where you need to show evidence and you are relying on your memory, which if your experience of DV is anything like mine, your memory's shot. You've got trauma, you've got emotions, it's all happening. So just having a diary will help you line up times and dates. And that's a huge one. Text messages often reveal things like, can I please have some money for the groceries and someone's saying no, which is a very common scenario. So try to put it in writing, um, because then we can use screenshots as evidence and keep a diary. Keeping a diary, whether you have compounding evidence of bank statements and text messages, the diary just brings it all together.
0: What do you need to put So the who, what, when, where, why? Yes.
2: Apart from the usual time, date, what happened, who was involved, I wanna know how you felt, were the children impacted, were the children within earshot or did it have an emotional impact on them? Was there any physical violence or any physical evidence we can tie to it? Where is that evidence kept? But how you felt and how you reacted is huge. So for instance, um, one of the DV relationships that I was in whenever I wanted to go out with my friends and didn't wanna bring my partner at the time along because essentially I was the primary income owner and he was a freeloader, for, for lack of a better word. Um, I just didn't want to have to pay for him. And we would fight about anything and everything. So I would not go to the event and I'd spend my time wondering why I'm such a bad partner. So that's how I felt. I was hesitant to go to future events or social events. And my reaction was to withdraw. So they're all really important factors in evidence in coercive control or emotional or psychological abuse. How you felt and how you reacted and how your behaviour changed.
0: Like the sort of, where do they keep that?
2: Keeping it is the hard part. Um, Because obviously if you're living in this house with someone, they might rifle through your things. I know I've had that fear. I've also had a partner do that to me. So places where they can't get to it, um, you can leave at some bank still or at a lawyer's office documents in security. So you can go there, access it once a week, take it out, do your journal and come back. Um, The one that I loved and the one that I did was keeping it in the glove box of a car, my car, because I generally have my car key in my bag so I'd know and I could, Like, you know, I could stick that car key in my bra if I really wanted to keep someone out of my car. And you also want to be really specific. So recall the exact words they used and the exact words you used. You'd be surprised how difficult it is to recall those exact words later down the track. And yes, if we're just recalling words, it seems like a he said, she said. But then that's where we look at the bigger picture, potentially a magistrate or a judge considering your evidence of he said, she said and your recollection to be more powerful because it aligns with the bigger picture of their behaviours or how they communicate with other people.
0: Is there something within those court systems that you find when evidence is being presented that there seems to be a really common thing that could be done that will improve an outcome for their favour?
2: Yes, specifics and details and the diary. Like, I know you are doing the journal, but people don't believe how important that diary is. And you want to be diarising every interaction, even if whether it's good or bad, because it also just shows that it's not all bad and we're not painting this really bad picture where this is what happened at the time. Um, You even can go to the extent of, you know, for some people, they have supervised visits. So you can get someone to just say that I was there on the day or you know, co-sign your diary or something like that. But having, I guess, evidence which has gone with from since before separation or from the date of separation all the way through to needing to use the evidence and being incredibly specific about feelings, who was there, what was said and anything else which may substantiate that which is in its physical form is huge and i wish people did more of that because when we get to court and it's like oh no we rocked up to change over at this time but he said he couldn't get there so i left like and you don't have a screenshot of that call it's really hard for me sometimes it's the surrounding circumstances which make your evidence stronger than the other parties
0: have you found that something men do better than women or women do better than men in certain things
2: Generally, I think women do it better because they seem to be better record keepers. Men are always hard to get to use a diary, but men are better on the emails and the text messages. Even just
0: like in the notes tab
2: of your phone. Your notes tab is one that I quite like. Your phone calendar or your notes tab, the calendar is good because it shows it was kind of like on that date. Whereas notes tab, I think the. It updates the date whenever you go back into it, but one thing I love about the notes tab is that the client can just forward it to me and then I have a text version, so it's really easy for me to put that into evidence. It's almost a copy and paste job, which then significantly reduces your legal fees, whereas if I'm getting a handwritten diary, I may have to retype some of that, or I may have to photocopy and attach it or submit it in a different form or potentially as a whole.
0: Um there was a question. Do you have to do is it necessary for people to have reported it to
2: police? If you want a protection order, I would say yes, it's necessary. The other flip side of it is with parenting and property matters, if you don't report alleged domestic violence, a court may ask the question of why didn't you report it? and then you're stuck explaining why you didn't report it. And yes, they understand that there's a lot of risk. You're raising this issue of control and domestic violence when it's going to impact what result you get. How can you show me that this actually occurred? If you were so worried about it, why didn't you raise it when it was happening or shortly after? Then if you can turn up with your diary or text messages or, I don't know, social media, videos, call recordings, Um, No, you do need to tell the other person that it's being recorded. Um, All of those things will substantiate the fact that you said there was DV going on because you have evidence of that DV.
0: If they haven't reported it, will their evidence still be valid?
2: One hundred percent. You can always put your recommendation in, you can always ask for things, but The court needs evidence to make these things and this is where your diary is handy. It's like, yes, I didn't report it at the time because I was too scared and that is the most dangerous point. And then, yeah, that's when you can suggest things like, let's go to counselling or let's try and change this.
0: So it would be remiss of me not to plug our separation journal right at this particular point in the podcast, only because it feeds in so well to what Jacinta and Desley have both talked about, where Evidencing what you've gone through in your journey is so important. With the Separation Journal, panning down your journey isn't just therapeutic, it's empowering. It provides a really practical guide, providing you with a decision-making matrix, negotiation pages, action plans, so you can work towards what you need, as well as pages upon pages to evidence your interactions. So you can head over to splittales.com.au and grab a copy click the link in our show notes, The Separation Journal. They are $48, incredibly well spent. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can also purchase one of these as a gift. When filling out your shipping address, just put in there that you're donating it and we'll get that to somebody who needs it. Okay, so let's dive back into our episode now. So this brings us to some helpful words of wisdom from both Jacinta and Desley for those that may be considering leaving a controlling relationship.
2: It's like horrifying to see another human in a situation where they feel they can't escape and their life is in danger. But I think what society in general doesn't know is there are places you can go to get what's called a drop bag. So if you are in a situation, there's businesses where they have like food, clothing, tampons, basics and they can help get you into a safe house or you can leave that way secretly. So you can literally leave all of your things.
1: Yeah. Yeah, And and planning.
2: Yeah. Um, And then I think that's also why it's all, one thing, anyone in a relationship, even if your relationship is fine and dandy now, have a rainy day fund, have an escape plan because you don't know what might come. Even if you don't run into a DV situation, your partner could end up in a horrible accident. How are you going to deal with that? Do you have somewhere else to go? Do you have a safe person? Is there someone in your life you could speak to if things were really bad who could maybe help you leave? If you kind of have an idea of how much it would cost you to be away in a very temporary situation for a night or up to seven nights, that will at least give you time to get in contact with services who can find you something more permanent. There are a lot of charities and initiatives out there to help you plan your exit. But I would always say if you have a reserve there to at least cover a night or up to three nights, that is enough time to probably get in contact with police and get some protections in place. If you can cover that, there's the potential to have the other party removed from the home. But you might not get that in every instance, but the more time you can buy yourself, the better of a plan you
0: can set up. Now although Hannah's tale didn't eventuate into needing a temporary protection order or any sort of court orders, it is important to call out that if you feel you're in need of protection, you can take out a protection order. In Australia, protection orders are legal measures designed to safeguard individuals from further violence and abuse. These orders are known by different names in different states and territories, reflecting the variations in legal systems across the country. The primary function of these orders is similar across the country. They aim to protect individuals from violence and abuse. Although they're named differently, all the orders serve the same fundamental purpose of offering legal protection to people in abusive relationships. They are not criminal charges in themselves, but violating the terms of a protection order is against the law and can lead to legal consequences now you would have heard the phrase what's the point of a protection order because it's just a piece of paper and a piece of paper is not going to keep them away and it's understandable especially if you're feeling vulnerable or have had a negative experience however it's important to recognize the pragmatic benefits and the role that these orders play in the broader context of personal safety and legal recourse they do provide legal recognition of abuse they set legal boundaries They provide for enforcement and consequences. They do offer deterrence and they offer empowerment with safety planning. They build a case should the situation escalate or require further legal intervention. A history of protection orders and any variations provide valuable evidence. This can be crucial in custody discussions, divorce proceedings and criminal trials. It's important to note though that protection orders are only part of a larger system of support and safety. They are most effective when they're combined with other strategies like support networks, counselling, safe housing, regular check-ins with law enforcement or legal professionals. And while they're not a foolproof solution, they are a significant step in the journey towards safety and legal justice for many individuals facing abusive situations. And just as an order can be part of a wider plan, an individual safety plan should be personalized and practical to keep you safe and supported while you're in a relationship, during an exit and after you've left. And we by no means cover a comprehensive safety plan and risk actions here. However, we'll look at creating, perhaps, another podcast in future for that. Well, money is a huge factor for it. You know, upfront costs of things, people just don't have that. What do you think people should do in those sort
2: of circumstances? In those circumstances, honestly, if it's incredibly bad, and I have seen this before, I would... Be looking for charity somewhere probably like the Salvation Army or Financial Superwomen, Broken to Brilliant or any of the numerous domestic violence charities that are there because they will put you onto services which can help you immediately and they can help you develop an escape plan and escape so for instance there's services if you're in a domestic violence situation so you can use a phone there so you're not being tracked on your phone no one's knowing you're starting to develop this escape plan and then they can put you into contact and potentially financial support to rehome you, to give you some clothing and food in the meantime and help you rebuild. Here's Jacinta's
0: thoughts.
1: If you cannot move for whatever reason, call the police, let the, like your local police station, let them know, hey, i be I've just gotten out of a domestic violence relationship can you please flag my home? So if I call you, you will come immediately. Um, Because that's, that's one thing as well is that there is so many calls to police. And a lot of the time, the wait times are really, really long. If you can just get your home flagged, they will come out immediately and see that you're okay, that you're safe. Be paranoid if you need to be paranoid. When I say be paranoid, I don't mean act in paranoia. I mean, just, plan for the worst-case scenario, and if you don't need it, then that's fine. As far as advice goes when it comes to in, like being in this situation, documentation is key. How you obtain that documentation, you need to make sure that you're doing it safely. So if they can access your phone, if they can access your computer or have your passwords, then please just reach out to a friend and delete everything. Building a support system, professional and personal, so there is, there is so many free services out there. Call 1-800-RESPECT. They will link you into services and they will also offer counseling support. Talk to your friends and talk to your family. Tell them what's going on. Tell them how you're feeling. It, you may feel like you're being silly. You may feel like you're not valid in what your experience is, but I, experience matters. Yeah. Sort of a day-to-day front. Well, going back to the basics is probably the most important thing. So are you eating? Are you sleeping? Are you drinking enough water? Are you spending any time out in the sun? Are you getting any kind of exercise? And when I say exercise, I mean, I don't mean going to the gym every day or anything like that. I mean, like, are you you moving about? Are, Are you doing anything for your fundamental human needs to survive? And then we take it to another step who have you got around you have you got any kind of social social group friends family colleagues you know with Hannah having that those people at the store know her name like those kinds of things social being social even for introverts it's a fundamental human need just having some kind of human connection outside, outside of, of that part. outside of that Um, As far as it's, look, I mean, it's really, really difficult to say, um, give any kind of advice on what to do when you're actually experiencing domestic violence on how to take care of yourself. Because when you're experiencing domestic violence, you don't get to take care of yourself. You're too busy being afraid or taking care of the person that's abusing you. Taking care of yourself is just... Just taking care of trying to meet those basic human needs and creating an escape plan, a safe escape plan. And that's when talking to people, talking to professionals, reaching out is going to help you if you are not ready to escape, which is completely understandable. I mean, the average woman goes back, I think eight times or seven times, goes back to their their abuser that's okay you are not weak there is nothing wrong with you it is actually very very normal consider that it's okay that you love them and that you do not accept how they're treating you 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 can't do both you do not have to remove your love for them to it to leave them and most of the time when someone leaves an abusive relationship, they're still in love with them. That is okay. There's, you're not fucked up. There's nothing wrong with you. It's not your fault. It's, it's a trauma bond. So I guess owning that and accepting that about yourself is, is huge and just that self-compassion, like it's it's okay to still love them. It's okay to, screw up to have these maladaptive behaviors you are in an extremely traumatic situation you are in a turmoil in hell so give yourself a break and stop putting so much pressure on yourself to be okay to be a survivor you don't need to be a superhero Sometimes you just need to get out.
0: Well, if you're in the middle of a house fire, you, you don't necessarily take the time to think about, oh, I'm going to be a survivor of this. You just get the fuck out of the house. That's exactly right.
1: Hundred percent. I mean, Sometimes you just need to love yourself a little bit more than you love them. I had a metaphor years ago that I gave to a lady. It's, so, picture yourself standing on an edge of the cliff and you've got this burning bush behind you. It's just everything is on fire behind you. And the only way out is either you run through the fire or you jump off the cliff. You can't see anything below you. You can't see, it. it's just dark. It's just, it's a deep cliff. So your choice, either jump or run back into the fire or burn alive. The fire is your situation. It's your relationship. It's what's going on for you at the moment. The cliff is your crossroads and underneath, when you take that jump, that's your support. No one can make you take that step. No one can make you jump. You just have to, you have to decide that for yourself. But once you do, there is so many people that are willing to catch you, that are willing to help you, want to support you and want to get you out of this situation. So you just have to jump.
0: We've covered the complexities of coercive control law, the variations of orders across Australia, and the critical importance of safety planning when leaving a controlling relationship. But remember, while laws and documents like protection orders are crucial tools, they are part of a broader system. It's about legal recognition of abuse, setting boundaries and having a plan that prioritises your safety and wellbeing. That brings us to the end of this episode. It's been an insightful journey through the more technical aspects of the topics introduced in Hannah's tale. And albeit not as prominent in her experience, they could be in yours. And again, I am going to plead and beg, please share this podcast. And if you do have a couple of minutes, rate and review, because it honestly does help. If you have a tale that you'd like us to include on our blog or potentially turn into a podcast, head over to splittales.com.au and reach out to us via our contact us page. I thank our guest experts, Jacinta, Amber and Desley, for their invaluable insights. Join us next time as we continue to explore another tale. This is Leah, your host, signing off from Hannah's Tale and Postmortem. Thanks for listening. Bye. We're both burnt out Cause something isn't right I know Not a single